We know there are multiple things that great companies do well, but one thing all high-performing companies do is they are better at diversity. So we're not saying diversity drives good performance, but every high-performing company in every industry, in every country we can find, they're all more diverse. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. At our recent Global CFO Forum that we held in London, senior partners Celia Huber and Vivian Hunt led a discussion on corporate diversity, sharing insights from our ongoing research and answering questions from attendees. Vivian is based in London and is managing partner for our United Kingdom and Ireland offices and advises companies on a broad range of strategic topics. Celia has spent more than two decades helping large healthcare and financial institutions develop and execute successful strategies. She's based in our Silicon Valley office. What follows is an edited recording of their session. Celia begins with an introduction of McKinsey's work with LeanIn.org and the Wall Street Journal, surveying the state of diversity in the corporate world. So we're excited to have you here today. Why don't I just jump in and give you some statistics of what's going on. Uh, Every year we run a survey called Women in the Workplace. This is our fourth year having run it. And while it's titled Women in the Workplace, it's actually expanded. So we do also look at sexual orientation, Uh, and race and ethnicity, as well as gender. Let me give you just a few statistics. So of those um, companies that participated, there were 279 companies that opened up their personnel pipeline, their HR books, talked to us, gave interviews, and allowed us to survey their employees. Those companies represent roughly 13 million employees, and we actually surveyed or sampled 64,000 employees to try to understand the changing landscape of what happens in the work environment. The first question people usually ask is, well, is diversity improving? Diversity's not really improving. And as we've watched this over four years, you can see minor changes. So for example, the pipeline in corporate America, starting at entry level, going all the way to the C-suite, will start at roughly parity and will end up somewhere around 20%. That is better in some industries like healthcare, start at 70% and end at 35%. And it's worse in places like banking and consumer finance, uh, starting at 56%, ending at 24%, uh, even worse in asset management, starting at 46%, ending at 19%. So we have a problem moving, and these all numbers are for women, problem moving women along through the corporate pipeline. Now, there is some good news that the companies that are in our top quintile and the second quintile are actually making progress over this four-year period. However, the bulk of the companies are not. Part of the problem is really this first-level promotion. So, for example, women are 20% less likely to get promoted from entry-level to first-level management. 
And then that degradation of the equity and promotions continues throughout the whole pipeline. It is even worse for black women uh, and some of the other minority groups. So thinking through how to make sure we mentor, sponsor women at that early stage, but particularly all types of diverse women to make it to that first level management level is really important. The second broad question we asked in a survey is what does it feel like to be a minority or diverse individual in corporate America? And the second uh, question really led us to an insight. And the insight was it's really important to think about the onlys. Um, So what do I mean by only? Uh, For those of you who have ever been the only person like you in a room, uh, in your office, in your university, it's probably a pretty obvious point. But let me give you some statistics. 20% of women said that they were the only women in the room for most of their work lives. 45% of people of color said that they were the only. 70% of lesbian women and gay men said that they were the only. And the more common experience for senior level women and people of color as women in technical roles would also say, 40% of them would say that they're the only. So you might not start out as the only, but if you succeed, you often end up as the only. Now, why does this matter? We found that if you are the only, you're more likely to be looking to leave your job and find something else. The environment, the culture is less conducive to having you feel included. So as managers, we've all spent a lot of money trying to recruit and sponsor and retain people of diverse backgrounds, and yet we can get to a point where we're actually creating an environment that makes them feel more excluded, not less. I think that what's important about the uh, Women at Work survey is that it shows that you can get down to firm level insights. So if I take one, company who has a lot of uh, call and service centers. They're in a big technology-driven transformation. Uh, IT actually reports into the CFO, and they're in the middle of trying to go from these sort of call centers in mid and low-cost locations to a cloud-based services. Big tech transformation, probably 30 or 40% of the jobs will either go away or change. And in the midst of that, one of the things they observed in their talent pipeline through the granularity of the survey, which is not just sort of McKinsey or market data, but also their own HR data, but what they found was that they had you know, 35 or 40% diverse profiles, even within their women. Think about a 30% uh, Hispanic or Spanish-speaking call center in Texas or Arizona but not one first-line manager, so not one call center manager, which is quite a junior role in most companies, had ever been from a Hispanic background. And this is a company that's been around close to 100 years. Now, I don't think they would have ever had any systematic bias knowledgeably in their minds, but the fact is that first promotion, just literally from a call center employee or shift worker to a, uh, a shift manager had never happened for someone of, a, of a, a culturally diverse profile. So my point is it was a big aha moment for the management team in thinking about we're not even getting people started, never mind the fact that most people have two or three promotions in their whole career. And so really missing one early becomes very rate limiting across the group, never mind the, the motivational point. So the first thing I'd say is a small group of companies have made most of the progress on this. One is they have a why. And that why can be specific, right? So for SAP, it is about integrative 
the quality of integrative cognitive problem solving, and there's multiple varios within that. For McKinsey, we certainly share that, but it's also just about attracting and retaining the best talent. For some people, they're focusing on their tech area and tech enablement of their business, where that's gonna add the most value to the business over the next couple of years, and therefore, that's where they have to win the, the talent game. But I think, as a CFO, it is really important that you're sure that the business has a why, because we found that businesses that did a lot of work, well, let me say affinity groups, so women's networks, ethnic minority networks, networks for people from outside the US, networks for people who went to certain kinds of schools, et cetera, all of those are very important for retention and visibility and messaging, but they don't move and they might make me feel more included and more confident, but they don't actually move the performance needle. And you sometimes see companies over-index on what we would say affinity networks and, and work with groups. But when you look at outcomes impact of diversity and inclusion metrics, the only thing that appears to matter are increasing participation and retention rates. So you're hiring and uh, promotion and really getting best practice in place. And that's knowable, often shareable across industries. Think about the mining industry, they're doing an initiative around creating a pool of engineering um, and sort of engineering plus one, sort of one degree away from, let me call it traditional engineering talent, creating a big pool. I think a lot of investment banks and investment management are creating pools you know, quite early in their pipelines and sharing those, and then hopefully good people will come to you. But that's one, and that's an area that's no longer uh, guesswork. And you know, if your company is not yet at good and best practice there, that's a gap you can close quite quickly. The second thing is clearly about the leadership appointments and more productive and more technical roles. You almost need to look at the seniority as well as the technical content and value add of different roles. And you can do a pretty quick scatter plot to say where in companies are our women. And this is the issue about first line promotions. And that also is a big factor in closing a gender pay gap. If you don't have senior women and you don't have them in the fastest growth, highest value added roles of the company, you can't close your gender pay gap. And then the last thing is an inclusive environment. And a lot more um, behavioral and economic science is being added to this notion of how do you create an inclusive environment for all employees? Because the reality is, it's not just about having women or some sort of historically underrepresented group feel, include, feel included. It's about improving your performance. And so you need everyone to actually feel included and motivated. And most behaviors that are not acceptable with a woman are not acceptable with a man either. But we've got to get to the point where through increasing the diversity of skills and inclusion of the workplace, which all leading companies do, this is correlation, it's an outcome. We know there are multiple things that great companies do well, but one thing all high-performing companies do is they are better at diversity. So we're not saying diversity drives good performance, but every high-performing company in every industry, in every country we can find, they're all more diverse. So they have a skill set at managing diverse types of talent. And so you know it matters in the end to performance. So those are the, the three areas I'd encourage you to think about. One is, do I have the scaffolding and playbook in place on recruiting and retention? Because that's no longer guesswork or exceptional. All good companies, never mind the great ones, do that well. Two is understanding leadership roles and particularly technology-enabled roles and am I becoming more or less diverse within that? And then the final thing is an inclusive management leadership culture 
We have this idea of what are the five or six behaviors I'm demonstrating as a leader. That's not just about you as a person. It really is about are you including inclusive practices in your leadership and management training. And as CFOs who really are typically, you know, one of the first, second, third most trusted voices and influential voices in a company, asking the right set of questions to your leadership development team. Have you modernized and are you including those practice here? Just by asking the right set of questions, you can normally get your team to include those things. But it is linked to performance. That's the main message I'd, I'd take away. This is growing hugely in visibility and importance for your perspective. The conversation next turned to the issue of how to best ensure accomplishing diversity targets and how companies should approach those decisions. Here's Vivian. I just would say there's always this debate around quotas versus targets, et cetera. And what we'd say is your experience of being explicit, quantifiable, and setting stretch targets for yourself that are visible to anyone who's interested is, is often part of the formula. You know, whether that extends to a quota often defend, depends on the legal environment. Brazil is a great example that recently mandated uh, affirmative action within its educational and its uh, corporate context. Uh, because 50% of the population self-identifies as Afro-Caribbean and literally Brazil won't grow unless it increases participation. So whether you make it as hard as a quota and a non-negotiable, I think, is a company choice. But what I will say is that targets, stretch targets, I mean, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. You know, one of my biggest professional regrets helping to found the 30% club is not naming it the 50% club. But do know that that is a feature of every company that makes real progress. In our survey results, we show about 15% of white men believe that their career prospects are significantly diminished the more that we talk about diversity. And so making sure that when you think about unconscious bias, we're also thinking about how to make sure everyone understands the business goal, but also, you know, are there disaffected groups and what can we, what's the messaging for those groups as well. This is why everything's easier when it's growing, because when you have the concept that our investment opportunities or the pie is growing for our company or for our industry, you know, there's room enough for everyone. But you have to think through those messages because you don't want to lose your high-performing colleagues no matter what their profile. An audience member described uh, recently attending a, a gathering of startups in Silicon Valley and being amazed at the level of diversity in that room. The comment actually surprised some of the people attending the session. Potentially, given that I sit in Silicon Valley, I guess I, I might take exception that it's a particularly diverse ecosystem. <laughs> you know, it is less representative of women and minorities, particularly black and other people of color that are participating in some of these innovative areas. So if I were to think about the startup environment broadly and where funding goes, it has historically not been diverse. It is much more diverse cognitively in terms of skill sets and technology skill sets and solving problems in different ways. And if you're really thinking about risk, right, there may be ways in which you can build in sort of better risk management and more diverse lenses on that. So you, you might have a strength in terms of picking a broader range of things. But there are some um, in, intrinsic profile aspects like gender and ethnicity where tech is less diverse. Could diversity efforts borrow from the ways environmental, sustainability, and governmental initiatives have gained traction in the business world? An executive in the audience pointed out that ESG and diversity both related to corporate sustainability. 
And you definitely see, I mean, and the environmental and sustainability side of it is a very good example of how a topic that was maybe 15, 20 years ago um, on the side of, or seen as a, let me say, a CSR elective, is now quite mainstream and core, both in terms of the circular economy of what investors are looking for and therefore what managers are looking for. Now it is for sure a non-negotiable. And normally companies who are holistic and thinking about their performance, so inclusive growth versus just growth, have a strong plan on ESG. I just think it's important to realize that when you look at some characteristics of uh, diversity, gender included, you can build them in or out as you work on the ESG initiatives. But the notion of targets and measuring it for sure is, is shared. I was at a conference for CalPERS, uh, which is the California pension fund, to make some of these measurements mandatory and apples to apples because right now you know you you as a company could put out whatever measure of diversity that you have it may not be consistent with how others are measuring it so there's a real movement underfoot uh, to do that a question about the share of public versus private companies polled in the women in the workplace survey inspired a discussion of the role private equity can play in fostering diversity I would say our work with private equity companies, some of whom are real leaders on this topic, you know, the biggest impact they can have given that in terms of asset management and investment management professionals, they are proportionally fewer, let's say women, proportionally fewer with tech, deep tech backgrounds. And it takes a long time to grow your own timber, you know, to build a professional through that ranks. Um, and their cultures, in some cases, also need to, to change. We had one firm that uh, we were working with that had, um, let's say about 3% uh, 10% women in their professional investment managers, and probably 15 women over the last years come and leave, right? So there's something that just wasn't working. But fixing that is a long-term fix. They decided to then focus instead on their portfolio, to, you know, sort of touch the billions and make a difference there with diversity and inclusion, ESG, et cetera, and feel like they're having a huge impact on their portfolio outcomes. It is very clear that the biggest lever you can pull is how you think about your operating teams and driving your portfolio companies. If you're a big, mature firm with a, a large capability, you can also invest in the firm, but sometimes impacting your investment decisions is a much bigger point of influence than, than even the, the firm and the investment team itself. So I would encourage firms to look out into their investment portfolio. We certainly see some private companies that are doing really well and some public ones that are doing well. The discussion then turned to how transparency is a good thing, but that companies need to be careful that they're ready to deliver on the promises that they make. I do think on the board side, for board diversity, the publicly traded companies are doing better than the privately held companies on balance because there's been more public pressure on that. And we are in an era now of much higher transparency and uh, rigor around this topic. And so I do think that it is becoming a non-negotiable. I think that's great. But I also think, you know, we have cases, we see examples where companies stumble. Remember once we were, it's probably for, we um, are fortunate to help work with WEF and on the, the content for, uh, for Davos and so forth. And we had a, a you know, global company that wanted to be the global partner with WEF on gender, but you know, couldn't even pull together its own numbers at that point. And, and it certainly cares about the topic, but it didn't even have its own basic data. So when you said, well, how many women do you have or how many XYZ do you have or how culturally diverse is the company, they couldn't even answer those basic questions. And they would say, well, in the UK, it's illegal to 
categorize the data, but if you ask employees, 85% of them voluntarily tell you I'm from a diverse background. So they didn't have the basics in place. Another example from the US, a CEO announced that he wanted 30%, 40% women by you know eight years. He and gave himself and the team time to get there. But again, um, they ended up having to pause that objective and come back the next year with a much more comprehensive plan because he said it, but they didn't actually have any of the scaffolding or the machinery to get it delivered. So it's the same thing if we were saying we're going to take out um, or improve our productivity or grow in a certain way or take out a cost. If you don't have a plan against it, you're not going to let your CEO or your business unit heads announce it, right? You're going to say we at least have to have the steps in this because we're only going to announce to our investors and the public what we can deliver on. So I just would be very careful about not rushing to signpost. Um, be very clear about the things you announce, and particularly in today's much more transparent age, lots and lots of um, well-meaning advocates and supporters of your company, like your investors and your employees, are paying attention. But there are also groups that are looking to criticize and make sure that language around this is not just cynicism and talk. So you have to be you know, quite substantive and serious about it. And the more specific you are about what you want to accomplish and backing that up with metrics and progress, frankly, the easier it is. I know so, it sounded a little uncheerful, but I think, <laughs> I think it's a good sign because it means the topic is moving from the nice to have, we're good people category to a business imperative that we're going to measure. And that, that has to be a good thing. Some attendees pondered how representative the diversity levels at companies in the survey were of their respective countries and communities. The entry level in most companies, in most sectors that we looked at was pretty representative of the inbound population. Okay? So healthcare attracts more women, 70% of women are in entry level. So when you say, is it representative, at what level? Because I would say, gosh, very few C-suites are representative of the population broadly. Now, our top quintile, as I mentioned, had made a lot of progress on moving their numbers, and they were likely to have close to even promotions from the entry level all the way up to the C-suite, and that's kind of the best that we've seen. I had an interesting podcast interviewee thing with Nitin Noria of HBS, and he talked about the fact that the grade allocation within the business school was parity, so they feel like they had parity in the classroom, good performance, there wasn't a bias against um, pro rata for the women who were in the room, yet the Baker Scholars, their awards of excellence, the most visible and distinctive things, was in no way 50-50. So, you know, he would say focusing on excellence and most visible things was an important starter. And secondly, recognizing that his own behavior and modeling and language made a huge difference to what the faculty then do. And that is another reminder I'd have is that, you know, making sure you're comfortable enough to deal with some of the good conversations. So he'll say when you make what people consider diverse, and there's always these air quotes that I can't quite figure out, appointments, get ready for pushback. Get ready for people saying, you know, you didn't appoint her on merit, or why did we leave the position open when we had two qualified people because we need the function filled. You know, it appears that you and the CFO don't agree. You know, or you and the head of the faculty don't agree. It might be interesting to actually hear from, from companies that have gotten into what we'd call that sort of critical mass of multivariate uh, diversity. You don't want them to be such hero companies that it looks unattainable, but there are companies that are uh, structurally diverse and manage it well. Near the conclusion of the session, an audience member asked how he could conduct such a survey within his own company. All of the statistics and research that we've mentioned today is available on McKinsey.com. 
if you are a company that wants to participate, um, we do all of that research on our own investment with leanin.org. And so there's no cost to companies. We want to get a data set because, as you know, uh, it's hard to get apples to apples reporting across uh, diversity. And so having more companies participate and having us scrub the data so that we know it's apples to apples has been really an important effort for us. Thank you to everybody who joined us today inside the strategy room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the strategy and corporate finance practice page, where you can also find links to previous podcasts. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Please join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.